Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter how's it going it's going well i think spring is in the air yes for sure uh, i also think we might be boring the mini docs in here who as i hit record just gave me the biggest yawn and just like exasperated look i've ever seen so well, apologies who's, who's to say apologies to all of the dogs listening to this podcast who find it boring right uh, we're entertained by it. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's that time of year where I feel like people are starting to ramp up. You know, there is racing starting this week, this weekend. I know a lot of the people on the jukebox cycling team that I do a bit of work with. Uh, a lot of them are out racing this weekend. Deep and South is going to be yeah, mid South. Mid South. Mid South. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's next weekend. But they're all doing kind of tune up races this weekend. Okay, good um, practice for sure. Yeah. So we're we're starting to finally get back to that. And I mean, you've built probably a dozen three-month plans at this point in the last couple weeks as people are starting to realize that they're now eek, three months out from their, mm -hmm. their yeah, goal Yeah, I mean, race. not always eek. Sometimes it's, again, spring is in the air and people get reminded of this. And in a couple of cases, you know, someone's put in lots of work skiing or cross-training for a few months or slugging it out on the trainer. And now they're looking to, you know, polish towards uh, an event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm realizing as we're we're putting together our schedule for the summer, uh, it's closer than I uh, I imagined. I was like, ah, oh, we have plenty of time. This will be great. I can plan all these training weekends and blah blah blah. And suddenly, I'm like, we have no weekends. We have no time. Mm -hmm. uh, so PSA to anyone who's not really thinking yet about their summer race schedule. Now is now is the time. I think pretty much everyone, all the promoters we know have put out their schedules pretty much, and it does feel like this year is actually happening so fingers crossed um i think yeah now's now's the time to kind of put put things on the actual schedule we talk about this in our book becoming a consummate athlete the importance of actually you know putting these races onto the calendar letting your your family know which weekends you're going to be and choosing right yeah mm -hmm. it's it's uh it's unnerving you know to commit because you're going to miss some other stuff maybe but i think that's you know if there's a hack there it's the the secret to competing as a busy uh, adult or age group athlete is is putting it on the schedule and focusing you know for it could be a month a two months uh, whatever uh but towards that that one event right mm -hmm. Yeah, so make sure you're you're looking at your schedule now, and if you do need a three-month plan to get you ready or any other kind of plan, I definitely head over to consummateathlete.com to check out the, the coaching tab and all the information for custom plans, pre-built pre plans, coaching consults, all that fun stuff is right there. Uh, we also have our book of the month that we're reading, uh, which is Chatter by Ethan Cross, which is not actually technically an, a sports book, but I heard him on a couple different podcasts, and it's... A, Honestly, it's basically a sports psych book. If you just replace some of the business metaphor or metaphors or examples with sports. And you said uh, it was a lot about self-talk. All about self-talk. Self -talk. So yeah. things we say to ourselves. Yeah, and I thought it would actually be interesting to read a book that's more about self-talk, generally speaking, because I do think we talk about this all the time. If you go to a sports psych, the odds are pretty good. You're basically going to talk about similar stuff that you're going to talk about with, with a regular therapist uh, and vice versa. It all sort of feeds into each other. 
So yeah, definitely check that out if you're interested. That's again over at consummateathlete.com. And for today's guest, I'm super excited. We have Gary McCoy on. He is a sports performance practitioner. Uh, his, his bio reads, he's living at the intersection of data and elite athlete performance. So what I love about Gary, and I was actually on his podcast, The Human Kinesome Project, uh, back in December, and you can grab the link to that in the show notes if you didn't hear it. Uh, so he works for, for basically a company that collects a ton of athlete data. Uh, right now he's at Kinetics, which is focusing on run power, but he's also worked for a couple other startups in the past. He's worked with, um, uh, what is it called? MLB baseball teams. Right. Okay. Yes, nailed it. Uh, really <laughs> baseball association. Okay. Yeah. Really crushed Great. that one. Um, and just tons of other professional sporting organizations. Uh, so he's, he's worked with some of the world's top performers and he's gotten to look at a lot of just massive data sets sort of in doing that and in some of his work in this like health biotech space, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think it's it's fascinating because he, while he could be such a, a data nerd about it, he could be completely numbers oriented and just very much in this objective, the numbers mean what the numbers mean. He's also super open to really talking through where subjective data comes into that, where feelings come into that and how all the data in the world doesn't really make up for if you wake up feeling like absolute crap um, or if you wake up feeling amazing and all of your data is telling you that you don't feel good, um, how, how we can kind of look at those two things and rectify them basically. Right. Okay. Which is something that you deal with often as a coach, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always, you know, that's the, the classic comments discussion or the, you know, you want to know how the, the person, the athlete, the organism is doing, right. And how they're perceiving, uh, we know this from pain science and all these different things. You can have pain without uh, actual physical mechanical injury uh, and vice versa. You can have, there's lots of people walking around with, you know, knees or shoulders that look really bad on an x-ray, right? But then they feel, uh, they perceive this differently, right? So it's, it's the same as with the performance of an athlete. There's lots of reasons it can go uh, right or, or wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was just a fascinating conversation. He's such an interesting guy, just has had so many years in, in the sport world from all different levels and has just so many really good actionable sort of takeaways for any level of athlete. So yeah, uh, without further ado, I think we should just get into this. So enjoy this episode with Gary McCoy. Definitely head over to consummateathlete.com to grab the show notes. And here he is. Okay, welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you. <laughs> it's awesome to be here, Molly, and uh, get to know you over the last uh, couple of months. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Yeah. So when when we were talking for your podcast, the Human Kinesome Project with Kinetics, um, yeah. you kind of you alluded to so many things that you've been involved in in the athletic world. So give us sort of your your whirlwind elevator oh. bio of just how you ended up in this position and exactly like where you are right now. Yeah, really interesting. So, um, well, interesting for me. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's start there. So you're picking up the accent. It's Australian and uh, born and raised in Melbourne, Australia, uh, which is probably the in the Southern Hemisphere, the sports capital of the world. Um, so every kid plays sports. I grew up playing Aussie Rules, crick, uh, Aussie Rules football, cricket, um, swam. Uh, that was probably the sport that I was uh, most proficient at. I was uh, achieving a fair bit of success in the pool. Um, got to about 15 and decided I had a cousin playing baseball. I was sick of looking at the black line on the bottom of the pool. 
And I had a cousin playing baseball and he really loved it. He wanted to come and play for a season with me. So convinced my mum, hey, let's go. I'm going to go and play baseball. And uh, never kind of looked back. That was a sport I kind of really adapted to. And um, so when it came uh, at the end of my high school uh, term, um, we complete a certificate program in Australia high school certificate. Once that's done, um, you make a choice based upon your scores of where you want to go to school, what you want to study. And I had two options. I had a graphic design, I had a pretty decent portfolio in graphic design, physical education. The campus was really, really close to me. And it was, you know, that was kind of the deciding factor. It was like easy to get to. So um, stayed at Victoria University uh, through a master's degree in exercise science. So that really was a structure of kind of planting the seeds of career. Then moved to the United States um, in and around baseball again. You know, had a passion for that game and that sport. Um, got to the United States. I uh, ended up working for a company called Cybex, which you know, a lot of your listeners may know. If they ever walk into a gym, they're going to see a product by Cybex, strength training, uh, treadmills, those kind of things. Became their director of education back in the mid-90s. And that was really a springboard to a career in uh, sport. And now today, here I am at Kinetics. Oh, boy. And somewhere in there, yeah. And somewhere in there, you ran a marathon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did. Yeah, so look, lifelong athlete, right? So I got to a stage I had um, uh, from Cybex, I kind of had this, you know, reputation of thinking differently. I think it was. And I think it was very much my Australian sports background and sports science is something that really started in Australia. You know, we were the first country to really invest heavily in technology and and scientists and, and, and people, you know, coming in the best minds or coming into sports to rebuild our athletes. So I was a product of that system when I got here. So um, it projected me into working in um, major league baseball eventually, but I actually worked for a tech company in 2000, 2001 called Healthy Tech. They were a handheld metabolic analyzer. You breathe into this thing. It'll tell you how many calories a day uh, you, you burn at rest and how many calories a day you can, you what, what caloric information you need for exercise and stuff like that. So I was actually spearheading a fair bit of um, that information when I met a guy that's really challenged me. His name's Steve Wilhite. He was a marketing guy that he was stolen across from Apple. He was jobs, right-hand guy, Gary run a marathon. I'm like, man, mate, I run 90 feet and I turn left. You want me to run 26.2 miles in one direction? Yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, we'll get a coach. We'll get, we'll get, I'll get the best coach I can find. So he grabbed Jeff Galloway who actually, you know, famous, you know, gold medalist in in the marathon wrote the program for me from zero to 12 weeks in and next thing you know, I'm running in Paris. I thought, you know, spring in Paris, how beautiful can it be? You know, and it was rainy and miserable and cobblestone roads everywhere to run on that I wasn't, you know, kind of anticipating too. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. but quite an event for me, it was a real challenge to move out of a, like a power sport into being a marathon runner. Oh my gosh. So many directions. And I actually do just want to like go back to what we were talking about before with the marathon, yeah. you mentioned there came the point where your hip flexors are starting to feel oh, tight. So yeah. rather than doing what 99.9% of marathoners would do, which is slow to a walk, maybe, you know, stop on the side of the road, do a little bit of stretching, maybe pretend they're going to like be able to stretch it out, 
Yeah. Not be able to stretch it out, keep hobbling through the finish. Uh, you actually thought through how how that could work. Could you just kind of talk through that again? Yeah, that absolutely. So yeah, what, what I end up doing, and this is like, <laughs> there's no um, scientific evidence around uh, suggesting that this is a process or a method <laughs> so no for one, anybody. No one but take it this me. as like a yeah. do this exact thing. It's yeah, more check, the... with your, check with your doctor before <laughs> applying this process. Yeah, no, it was... It was that um, it was that moment. So searing pain in my hip flexors around the 21 mile mark. That's where I remember it was, and it was at that point I was on a I was on an uphill stretch where I just had to lift a little bit higher, uh, just a slight incline in this in this course. And I was at the point where it was just like I felt like I was getting a knife jabbed into each hip flexor on the way up. So my thought process: Well, why? Why is this happening? Is it just overload neurally? Is there potentially blood pooling in that system? What could I do to alter the effect of this? So it was change the range of motion was what I tried to do, and so. I remember just sprinting and getting as long a stride as I could and then pulling back and shuffling and doing like 30-second bout intervals of that. And um, while the sprint exhausted me a little more, I think um, all, all of a sudden the pain was gone. And I was like, okay, that worked. Um, thank God another some other joint uh, <laughs> didn't get the same, the same kind of pain because I wouldn't have known what to do. <laughs> I have actually often noticed that on long runs, sometimes you kind of get into these weird shuffly patterns that aren't necessarily super good for you. As you get further in, things start slowing down. Yeah. And I have noticed actually going faster, doing those little sprints sometimes just helps you almost reset your natural stride in a weird yeah. way. Yeah, so, it, just, it opens everything up. And I've always worked like even working in, in baseball, which we'll get to, I mean, it gets to a point where you're, you're constantly finding homeostasis and you're constantly finding the body's desire to economize. And, mm -hmm. if, and if we're constantly in that battle with economy, then you, we've got to work ways around it to try to offset that. And that was, I think that was prevailing in my head uh, during the course of that run. Mm -hmm. I love that. And okay, you kind of casually alluded here to working with the, uh, the MLB, getting into yeah. getting into the baseball thing. So how does someone yep. go from like high school baseball and like a phys ed degree yeah. Um, yeah. and like, you know, doing some work with a weight company to like, boom, you're working with baseball players? Yeah, it was funny. So in 2006, um, baseball was kind of in the, uh, because of the amount of substance abuse that was in the sport, professionally in North America, baseball got removed from the Olympics. And so with that removal from the Olympic Games, Major League Baseball said, well, you know, screw you guys. We're going to come up with our own Olympics for baseball. We'll call it the World Baseball Classic. So the first one of those events, which brought national teams in from every country that participates in the sport, uh, funded by Major League Baseball, was 2006. And the head coach of the Australian national team, amazingly, was a guy that I had played with back in Australia. And the time he would spend in the US, he would always say to me, mate, your name comes up if I'm in and around a physical therapy facility or, you know, somewhere your name always pops up. You know, it's like uh, Americans must think there's like 12 people that live in Australia and you and I are two of them and we must know the other 10, right? So it was kind of that weird, um, it was who you knew. And John Diebel, his name is, and he's now the director of scouting for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. So he... Um, he invited me in and said, look, we've got this event. It's um, right before the Major League Baseball season starts and everybody has panicked around if a national team athlete gets an injury, they could lose millions of dollars and their team could lose them. 
for the Major League Baseball season. I said, well, mate, I said, look, we can science this up. We can be smart about how we do this with our athletes. And I said, you want to put a recovery protocol together and we want to do um, you know, a whole battery of differential kind of training coming into this. I said, we need to ensure we have the outputs, but we've got to get high recovery mode on these athletes. So we put a pretty rigorous recovery system in place. We would like, I was blowing up um, uh, little like pools that we could do ice baths in and in various areas. And yeah, so we would have contrast baths for athletes. We would have a a foam roll protocol and these athletes would have to, we mandated that they had to do this after every game and uh, to keep them healthy. So we perform well and we were actually the only team that didn't have an injury during that tournament. Nice. So when major league baseball heard about that, they started inquiring. And the next thing, you know, I got a offer to join the uh, it's now the Miami Marlins, but then Florida Marlins in 2007. That's amazing. Uh, there's there's so many things there. The first is just I love. I've I've always said that the who you know just kind of like continually talking to different people in different different sports, different you know areas. You know whether it's marketing or sports science or all of these different things. Uh, you just kind of never know where all of those relationships are going to lead, yeah. especially in the world of know. sport. <laughs> It, it's it's got to be like being a chef, right? All of a sudden you find a spice and you go, oh man, that'd work really well in this, in this area, right? Mm-hmm. So I kind of think of it that way too. I've learned, I've had opportunities. So I, I'll fast forward. So through seven years of Major League Baseball and leaving the Houston Astros is where I ended up in 2013. I went to Asia and worked with a team there uh, for six months uh, before going to work for a technology company called Catapult Sports. And the beauty of Catapult, they're now a massive company around the world. They have these little sensors that players wear on the back of their shirt, on a compression shirt, and it measures everything. And what I really liked, one of my frustrations with baseball was the fact that we'd have all these subjective kind of discussions with coaches. Coach would look at me and go, he's out of shape. I'm like, well, rounds of shape. What shape would you like him <laughs> to be in, right? So it's not his... He's, he's overweight, but he's a pitcher and it's not affecting his velocity. What do you want, right? So having those just horrible discussions, um, I went to Catapult Sports because I wanted objectivity. Yeah, I'm a sports scientist by trade and to have objective data to work around. So I immediately went into Catapult Sports and as their senior applied sports scientist and we grew that company uh, to being publicly traded uh, in Australia. And we had, um, I ended up working with 21 NFL teams, 17 NBA teams. Uh, I worked with five major league soccer teams directly, uh, started to get called over to the EPL in Europe to work with teams over there as well. And I had a front row seat, Molly, to some of the best sports practitioners in the world. And that was, that's, you know, and that network I have kept robust through today. So good. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, so you mentioned before that I really just want to quickly mention, I love when people refer to recovery stuff as recovery protocol, mm. because that makes it seem so much cooler than it really is. <laughs> right. I'm like, yes. Oh, I don't do yes. recovery, but I could have a recovery yeah. protocol. I'm, yeah. I'm on board if you call it a protocol. So yeah, like the you 90, get I think like the 1950s, yeah, the 1950s recovery protocol I know in Australia was 50s, 60s, 70s looking at Australian rules football was, you know, beer and a cigarette. How's your recovery protocol, right? It's just like, what? But, uh, yeah, look, I think any any athlete, I think, holistically um, is understanding the value now of recovery and the best recovery in the world we have is sleep. 
And so if we can monitor both the quantitative and qualitative aspects of sleep, it gives us an indication how to train the next day. Absolutely. And this is something you and I talked about on your podcast is this, this where objective and subjective data can meet, Mm -hmm. can overlap, can work together. I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the difficult part for coaches is when they're trying to put their own subjective opinions on athletes and develop protocols for them based on what they think subjectively, or even what an athlete tells them subjectively. Yeah, And if they don't have any objective data to go on, that's a really difficult scenario. Flip side, I think we can get way too down the road with the objective data and forget the subjective, especially as athletes. Critical, Uh, right? Yeah. No, you're (laughs) right. Look, I think it comes down to the best models I have seen in the world of sports. And this is getting around to being able to work with um, like Barcelona FC, Chelsea Football Club over in uh, the UK. Um, UFC, the ultimate fighting championship, what Duncan French is doing there is stunning amount of research into how we train and measure and recover athletes. What I've noticed at Works Molly is is a model we call an athlete-centric model, which really has six kind of components to it. The very first and most prominent one is how the athlete presents daily emotionally. That's probably the most important thing because that emotional foundation governs the next area, which is their cognitive thought process, right? How they make decisions in game. So we've got to have that emotional foundation and then understand how they're making decisions cognitively. So pull those two aside, which are generally measured, while the first one is measured very subjectively, then we move into the objective measurement of, you know, cognition and then physical systems, right? And there's a battery of physical systems we can look at. How do those physical systems affect kind of area four, which is uh, the technical ability of that athlete, whether it's running, pitching a baseball, bowling a cricket ball, hitting a tennis ball, doesn't matter what it is. How do those, are there rate limiting factors physically that alter that technique? And then we look across on the coaching side and understand both the tactical and then the strategic use of that athlete over time. And we get this kind of temporal kind of understanding of an athlete's ability inside a team or even individually. If we follow that model really well, um, we can make a lot of really smart decisions about how to train moving forward and even how to analyze when things don't go right. We can Mm -hmm. go back through that model and see what broke down. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I feel like a lot of that, all of that model, there there are both like the technical or there are the, the subjective and the objective ways of yeah. measuring sort of all yeah. of those things, which I think is is very like, yeah. interesting and worth, <laughs> worth I was, noting. Yeah, I was asked this question the other day. And, you know, what's funny is I talked to a mate of mine on the phone the other day, Andy Walsh. He hits up a program called the Liminal Collective. And Andy was a performance specialist with Red Bull for a number of years. And a uh, brilliant guy. God, just one of the sharpest minds I've come across in the performance domain area. And we kind of landed at the end of our discussion. I said, you know, most important thing that you, you understood. He goes, mate, he goes, look, I just want to know what that athlete was presenting with that day. And I said, yeah, me too. I said, I got to a point of walking up and asking a single question. How do you feel today? And then I kind of used that as pro- probably the primary metric of, of how to train them that day and how to prepare them for the next game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But part of that is giving the athletes the vocabulary to answer the question, how do you feel that day? Agency. Exactly. And the only way to do that as a coach is to develop trust 
out of the mm-hmm. gate. And, you know, I think if you ever talked to any of the athletes I worked with, um, like I've been in so many weddings uh, <laughs> the athletes I've worked with. And, uh, you know, when it gets to that off season in baseball, my wife will go, how many weddings are we going to? And, you know, it's like, yeah, because we have that, we have that level of trust, you know, and it's like, I think you've got to establish that first. And then athletes will tell you how they're feeling and, and, and what they need. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first started, <laughs> sorry, I remember when I first started working with, uh, with my coach, I was yeah. really nervous to tell him whenever, like, whenever I wasn't feeling good because I was actually like afraid he would, you know, edit my workout and, and yeah. make it, you know, make it less, even though, because like I was maybe feeling a little down, but like still wanted to do the miles. Cause I was afraid yeah. if I said, I didn't feel good that it would, you know, mean this to him and he wouldn't think I was like tough enough or whatever. And you know, the longer we've worked together, the more I've realized, yeah, they do. And also same for me working in Asia, the very first thing was understanding the cultural kind of where you are placed if you are older and you are a coach you have you're held at this kind of very auspicious level that people don't want to disappoint you and i i would tell them right away no i'm here for you let's flip this model you know i'm i'm here to serve you and that was a challenge uh, especially in asia from being a foreign coach coming over that was a challenge for a lot of them but uh yeah it really worked well hmm. yeah yeah and okay, so now that we're we're talking about data, tell me how you came to Kinetics and what exactly uh, your your role is there. And uh, also, just maybe like give our audience a little what is Kinetics if they haven't heard our podcast with uh, with Joanna Magic, who's the creative director mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. Give us give us the the background here because I just find yeah. this company so fascinating, even as someone who you know is very like skeptical on any objective data. Yeah. So my, I had a lot of success at Catapult uh, delivering uh, sports technology into this marketplace. So um, Kinetics, how that company was born, firstly, our CEO, Brianne Everett, Dr. Brianne Everett, is absolutely brilliant. Um, she started back, I think it was as early as 2010, with the formation of a sensorized insole, primarily for diabetics with distal neuropathy in the medical market. So she had lost a patient. It's, a, it's an incredible story how this came about. I think she'd lost a patient in an operating um, table situation where they were looking at, you know, this diabetic patient had lost a limb. She was called in to do some reconstruction. They lost the patient. They thought, you know, we've got to figure out a way to understand where this starts and how to offset this. And foot ulcers were a big problem uh, for, for a diabetics patients. And so long story short, she came up with a sensorized insole that they figured out would be applicable for even like doctors could monitor those patients when they weren't around, when they weren't in clinic. So she was starting to think of this dis- distance-based kind of monitoring of patients way back in 2010. So fast forward to about 2015, through funding, through prototypes, through development, finally gets this product kind of kick-started in the medical markets and was being hyper-successful in that channel. Well, a group, uh, an investment group by the name of Next Ventures got a hold of Brianne and said, look, we think there is a potential market for this product in sports performance. So this was back, I believe, I think it was like 2019, early t- stages of 2020, Um, And all of a sudden I get a call and this call comes in out of the blue and I end up on a phone call um, with uh, two guys that were were pretty impressive Um, and they were part of the investment firm and Lionel Conacher was one who absolutely brilliant still was on a board today uh, with, um, with Kinetics. The other one, ironically, was Lance Armstrong. 
And I was like, when you get a call and someone says, hey, this is Lance Armstrong, I'm like, yeah, hang on. I feel, right? I feel <laughs> right? like you've got like a weird yeah. judgment to make there. You're like, do I listen or do I hang up? Which, exactly, which am I supposed to do? Right, right. And I've always been like one that says, yeah, I'm going to, I'll, I'll give you a shot. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking positive of you. And it's like this, the minimal amount of interactions I've had with Lance. He's been, he's been phenomenal, but it was really Lionel. I just have to edit that one- part out just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so anyway um yeah so he's, he's been great but uh Lionel was really the one um he had an inc- incredible um he was Canadian uh, NHL background and really talked a lot about this and he's like how did you launch Catapult and what did you get into and what were the barriers to entry and so we just had a real open discussion and I got an offer from the company to join and my role is VP of performance so my pure job is to commercialize this product but the way to do that is to understand what those metrics mean from a sensorized insole to someone like a running back in the National Football League. Their demands, Molly, are so different than somebody like a diabetic who's just moving around with activities of daily living. An NFL running back is going to provide so much force into the ground. So we've really worked over the course of the last 18 months and we are literally 30 days away from the release of this product commercially. So we're we're super excited about it. I'm going to get some under your feet at some point yeah. here soon, right? So you can play with them too. But we really, what I think uh, motivates me the most is we're on this kind of unknown journey because we've never been able to have valid sensors. So pressure sensors, um, triaxial accelerometer, gyroscopes, temperature sensors, all compact underfoot that we can measure how your foot interacts with the ground. And when, as a sports scientist, we kind of know that's the first ordered metric that we've got to have hold as the highest value because your interaction environmentally is governed by how well that foot ground contact happens. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so, so interesting. And I mean, I think I'm trying to think what I, where I even want to go with this because I have like 18 yeah. questions that all yeah. relate to, <laughs> to genetics here. Yeah. Um, I mean, with, with the, the data sensors, it's how, okay. Explain to me how this could work for an endurance athlete, because I think, I think yeah. that's what I really want to hone in on too, because we've talked yeah, yeah. about sort of how this applies to maybe a running back, but we've talked briefly in the past about how this can apply to an endurance athlete. So since our, yeah. since our listeners are endurance athletes, they're probably yeah. thinking, what does this actually mean for me? Because we've all heard yeah. run power bounced around before, yeah. but I think this is probably the first time that we're actually talking about legitimately understanding run power. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're hundred percent correct. And so we've got 37 pressure sensors in these insoles right now. And that KPI, that pressure, um, sensor data. Uh, we have our lead biomechanist, uh, Dr. Sam Blades. He's converting that into newtons of force. And then we are constructing based upon body weight and other data sets, constructing a power algorithm for runners. So um, critical power, we think as a runner, as an endurance athlete, will be one of those potential metrics that you will hang on to and transact upon in understanding your training program and back on that recovery protocol side as well, when to recover. So generally what we're looking at, I mean, there's so many places we could start. We could give you an indication of your total distance run without any other wearable. We could create that. We can know the number of steps, know your stride length and know that entirety and provide that data for you. Um, The things that I like to look at is mechanically how you are attempting to master a specific environment. So 
trail running. You've got a 100-mile race coming up, right? So as you're getting prepped for that, that terrain is going to change. Do you have asymmetry in the way your left foot and right foot is landing? Do you have center of pressure changes in a single foot, which could indicate so many different variables, so many different things that are kind of flags that we want to say, oh, we need this correction, we need this, obviously with a goal to to get the best time and the most efficiency we can out of that run. So Molly, the way I would look at this for a runner, it's a qualitative assessment of their running as opposed to just simply the distance ran. Mm -hmm. And there's so many insights we will be able to capture from that that'll be applicable to an athlete. Mm -hmm. I think you'll get to a point of understanding, say, your running power, and you'll know that, okay, if I've pushed out this level of power on, on these days, I need this level of recovery so I can repeat that performance again. Mm-hmm. And it's figuring out those metrics that will keep you in what we term a constant adaptation mode. That's what we're looking for. There's In sports, what we know, there's really four reasons injuries happen. The first reason is overload. You just did too much, right? Or you've done too, too much high-intensity work on a big chronic work base. Yeah, too much is the reason most um, injuries happen. The second reason we'll find injuries happen is not enough. You haven't trained hard enough and then you've gone into an event and your, your training and adaptation haven't met the demands of the sport. Overtraining, undertraining, which narrows our pathway immediately. The next level is variation. If you have too much variation in your training, you can get injured. If you have not enough variation in your training, you can get injured. So we get this real narrow kind of pathway of quantification. If our goal is to constantly improve, this is where this insole is going to pay real dividends. Mm-hmm. I also love that you can actually move the insole from shoe to shoe. So it's not because yeah. there have been some like smart insoles that have come out, but they've been yeah. in running shoes, which exactly. I mean, the problem yeah. with that is that you might not like that shoe period. But then if you're, yeah. if you're me, you're running in like, I, I think I counted, I have 10 different pairs of running shoes that I yeah, use for I, different, I, different situations. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Some of them are just like slightly more broken in versions of the yeah. exact same shoe. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. And as those shoes decay, do they alter your force production or your power algorithm? Right. How do those things look? So exactly. Yeah. So, so that interaction foot shoe um, we think is critical and uh, there's already so much demand uh, kind of already built up for this uh, across the spectrum from NFL kickers uh, through to marathon runners. Um, There's a lot of demand on this product. Yeah. Now coming back to the way kinetics actually got started, this is what's really interesting to me is the fact that it started with diabetes research and the same thing could be said of the like continuous glucose monitors that are super, super trendy right now. Exactly. What, what is that? Like, what is that about that? And I mean, even actually compression, now that I'm thinking about it, like compression socks also started with diabetic uh, research and stuff. And suddenly then athletes are using them and now athletic brands have, have taken them over. I mean, how is this trajectory continuing to happen? (laughs) What's the deal? it, It is really interesting. And I think the qualification of products coming out of medical markets are superior than technologies that may happen in someone's garage because they just want to try to you know figure something out or or chase money or chase investment whatever that marker is and believe me we see a lot of that i get calls probably once a week from a new technology that's coming into a space 
and uh, they want an opinion, want to you know get some time to to, to discuss things. And I'd say one in thirty, um, I think, have merit. What I try to do in understanding this, Molly, is look at noise versus signal relative to a specific condition, and. I think that's where the gestation of a lot of products come is, is the problem is identified and then, okay, how can we solve that? And when you have a mind like Dr. Brianne Everett, when she put when she puts her mind to something, it's like, just stand back and wait, right? Because she solved this problem. And on a, on a call with her this morning, some of the uh, understandings of, say, the temporal activity of a uh, runner and, and, and what that time frame looks like and her efforts to say, yeah, I think we need to look at this. We need to look at that. Like she blows my mind. I'm like, yeah, you're right on. We do. Uh, So I think, you know, that's how technology kind of comes into the space. It's probably problem set at the beginning and how can we solve this through tech? And that amazingly, that is the best way to do it because I've seen like even NFL teams and, you know, you name the highest profile team. Sometimes they want to buy technology without knowing what problem they're trying to solve with it. And that's like, oh, well, everyone else has bought this technology. We're going to buy it too. Well, a great example of that is my old company, Catapult Sports in Baseball. They have no business being in baseball. Um, their player load algorithm is is based upon distance run. And guess what? You don't run that much in baseball. So, you know, but the teams buy that technology and try to make contextual sense of the data. And I think that's kind of putting the cart in front of the horse. Understand the problem first then figure out if the technology is going to provide good signal to answer that question. I like that. And I think that's actually maybe a good caution for, for a lot of athletes who end up with, uh, with 18 wearables and oh my God. different uh, meters and metrics and things going yeah. on. And they're just getting so many inputs that, it, yeah. you know, it's hard. It's, there's just so much noise coming in and they're not even uh-huh. sure of what issue they were trying to work on. Yeah, and it's like, I think everybody's probably got a kitchen drawer, which they could label the wearable graveyard. Right. And uh, so, you know, if you go back and look at, I remember the first wearable I ever had, Molly, I actually used in this marathon was a product called Sport Brain. And all it was, was a little accelerometer that you clicked on your hip and you had to unclip it, bring it home, put it in the cradle next to the computer and it would show you how far you ran. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And when I looked at my marathon, I said that I'd run 31 miles. I was like, no wonder I'm tired. I must have, I ran further than the damn course, <laughs> you know? So the inaccuracy of that was pretty funny, but it was one of the first ones, but you're right. Um, it's, there's a few things that govern um, the use of a wearable and the selection of a wearable. And one of the biggest ones is the friction that the wearable that you have to go through, all the all the stress that you have to go through to get that wearable ready for you to use it. If you have to charge it to, with too great a frequency, if there are pods stuck on the outside of your foot that could remove or break off. Um, if you're using a GPS-based system, that can have a two-meter error coefficient attached to it. So it gets back down to what do you want that wearable to tell you? What is the missing metric that you need? And I think... There are both uh, biomechanical and physiological kind of factors that are really integral to each individual's training program. And as a, like for your hundred mile race coming up, the first thing I would think about is, you know, tangentially to this is what are the rate limiting factors that you're going to experience during this run, right? Is it, is it nutritionally governed? Is it oxygen debt governed? Is it, 
asymmetry and potential pain governed biomechanically, what are those elements that could fail the system? And they're the, they're the ones I want to monitor the most and get the most the most data I can to try to flag when I'm at risk. Right, right. And so, I mean, for, for me, for the 100 miler, for example, like my sleep the night before is probably not going to be that worth monitoring because... Mm-hmm. What on earth is it going to do for me? <laughs> Knowing yeah. that I had crappy sleep, but I had to get up at four it. in the morning. To... You, you can bank it in the next week, though, too. If you can oh, plan nine, 10 it. hour sleep sessions, yeah, get that bank up. So that night before doesn't affect it. But you're right. I mean, the, you know, it's talking, I talked to a sleep expert on, on our podcast a few weeks back and um, absolutely brilliant. Her name's Anna West and she's uh, based over in Switzerland. And I met Anna at a conference. She works with teams like Brentford. Um, who are a big team in um, English soccer. Uh, and she's known pretty much around the world now as this person who comes in and alters basically sleep hygiene for an athlete and, and gives them indicators. And there's so many myths even surrounding what we need to do before we go to sleep. And one of the biggest ones that she kind of broke down for us on this podcast that we did with her was, um, was blue light. I used to think, and you'd read so much information about, okay, if you're on a screen constantly, it's keeping your brain awake and that, and keeping that brain awake, it's hard to get to sleep at night. You have, you know, it takes you longer to get into deep sleep, REM sleep, et cetera. And while that's one part of the equation, the real part of the equation that she, she started talking about was what does the blue light do to the brain effect? And if I take an athlete's phone away, sometimes that's more stressful than him actually having or her actually having the phone right there. Uh, so to that end, I mean, it's not specifically blue light. It's it's why that we've got to kind of break down and understand. So I think there's some really, sleep science is really interesting. I think the better we can get at sleep, like I've got two products I'm wearing for sleep right now and using for sleep. So, you know, it's like I compare both of them all for against one another and they're both pretty good nice yeah yeah sleep is such an interesting one i was i was actually just noticing i've now seen i think two different commercials for different mattresses that now actually have apps that measure sleep it's like yeah i remember eight years ago when like there was like one one like strap that went across the bed that was like a kickstarter at the time (laughs) yeah exactly right and i think i've got one of those in the garage my wearable graveyard is in the garage right yeah because i get a lot of this stuff sent to me to look at but um the one i'm using right now is actually eight sleep and uh, my wife and i love it because it actually has a heating and cooling system that is applied to your sleep cycles so Really, like what it's figured out for me is cool me off going to bed and I'll get to sleep faster. So I'm normally about seven degrees lower than room temperature that I'm in. And then as I get into REM sleep and deep sleep, it alters, brings me back to baseline. In the morning, it'll wake me up with a plus seven to 10 degree element um, to get me back going again. And I've noticed the qualitative effect on sleep has been staggering, but uh, it took a lot to convince me of that product. And Another buddy of mine, um, uh, Dr. Ben Peterson over at the San Francisco 49ers was the one that actually recommended it. He said he bought a hundred of these units. They put them into camp with um, their athletes uh, as they were coming in. He goes, he went to pick them up at the end of camp and he goes, I could only find 24 of these were left. He goes, the damn players took them with them. They, they loved them and they just took them, but Hey, it's expensive. And it's a, but you know, I, I think I would almost, I'd pay a lot to guarantee a high high quality sleep night every night. I really would. 
I think that's it, especially, I mean, we have a lot of cyclists that listen to that and listen to this podcast. And I mean, really, most of these things cost about what you'd pay for like a good wheel set. So not even the whole bike. We're not even talking about the cost of a whole bike. We're talking just like some really nice wheels. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But if you think about how much sleep can change your whole life, not just your bike ride and wheels are going to change your bike ride by like a few watts. Well, exactly. I mean, you are part of the machinery. You are, right? So if it's just like putting air in the tires on that bike, right? Well, let's get let's get fuel in the body to be able to propel you on that bike. I mean, you are part of that measurable machinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned your wife, and I have to just bring her up because she oh, is yeah. a nutrition expert. How has how has being married to a nutrition expert changed uh, changed how you've approached food over the years? Because I mean, I imagine you had yeah. obviously you had some background in this. It's exercise science. You kind of have to know about yeah. nutrition a little bit. Yeah. But then you live with someone whose <laughs> job is that. Yeah. Um, marry someone smarter than you was the best advice I've ever been given. I certainly did that. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how this works because <laughs> Peter and I co-host this podcast. So I'm like, oh no, which, which of us is? Yeah. Might, might have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good luck working that one out. Um, no, um, she's brilliant. So um, she is a professor. My wife uh, is Maureen McCoy. She's a professor at Arizona State University. And um, she's been um, got a master's in nutrition at Arizona State um, years back. And we met, I was actually teaching um, a metabolic kind of uh, management process in a class at a, at a health club chain called Lifetime Fitness. They'd employ me to come in and, and teach these. How do you do a, a gas exchange test? So we're looking at oxygen uptake, CO2 expression to know what substrate you're burning during exercise. The resting side of that equation, if you're fasted and we do that test first thing in the morning, we'll know the your resting metabolic rate, what that looks like, and then how you apply that calorically to structure nutrition for a day. So I was teaching that class. She was there. We met and started talking, never stopped talking. And it was one of those moments that I kind of watched her navigate her way through lifetime fitness. And what was funny, I remember saying to her, I said, if you go out on the floor and you look at personal trainers who are out there, they're all giving nutrition advice and none of them are qualified to do that. You know, there's these little weekend kind of certifications on nutrition. Everybody thinks they're an expert on nutrition based upon what may or may not have worked for them. And there's so many more factors than that. I used to tease my wife. I'd say, go out on the floor and start teaching a lat pull down and just, you know, and uh, just get in the face of some of these personal trainers to say, hey, there's a qualification for this. I really look at food now, um, having been in around her, as it's it's medicine. I mean, let's start there. I think it's our first order of medicine and that we are all different. This is the other thing that, well, she certainly learned from me coming out of Australia, which was pretty much meat and potatoes and beer, uh, right into, you know, she's an endurance athlete herself and her diet structure is a lot different than my dietary structure What she has helped me understand, and I had to do this as a coach, is a player would come to me and say, hey, I'm going to do paleo in this off-season. I'm going to do this diet this off-season. I'm going to do that diet. And I was like, I'd try these diets. And I'd say, please walk me through this. And I want some empathy for what my athlete's going through. And why do I want to kill somebody at the end of the week on paleo? Tell me why that is, right? And she would break down, you know, the the psychological effect of zero carbs and what that looked like. But um, 
I mean, I wouldn't make it a week. Let's just put it out there. So it's it's rough, (laughs) right? And one thing she knows about me is the discipline level. I can fast for 72 hours, no problem. Um, Not even look at, not even look about. Once I get through that first day, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need to eat. And she she works the mind kind of caloric process. If if I have a specific goal, she knows that pathway, and um, she stays right up on research relative to say the gut biome and things that are happening at those levels. She knows supplementation incredibly well. She was approached actually by a company once. They wanted to convince all their youth athletes that they don't need to eat real foods; they just got to buy all their supplements. And it was you know, somewhat lucrative for her. And she just walked away and said, you're out of your mind. And uh, so, yeah, she has a real um, genuine approach to this. And I think for anybody who's listening to the most important part of the whole dietary process is your macronutrients and getting them from real foods. I mean, supplementation, I mean, is just that. It supplements something potentially missing, right? So understanding what that fuel matrix looks like. Are you a 40, 40, 30, or whatever that, those 40, 40, 20, 40, 30, 30, whatever that breakdown is, the fats, carbohydrates, proteins, I think are the things. And everything goes through a cycle of fads. It was low fat at one point. Now it's high fat for a lot of, lot of our endurance community, especially. So it's staying ahead of that. So she's adjusted my perspective on food. And she is also... Uh, a phenomenal go-to. Um, when I was in Asia working, I was trying to figure out, man, we'd, we've done everything right. And I'm sitting around looking at the diets of these athletes. And they were all pretty much rice-based, a little bit of fish here and there. And I was like, we don't have enough protein to provide the repair that I need for this. And so she helped me walk through, okay, if you're introducing protein supplements, which are new to that culture, Think about taste, think about consideration. What are the taste profiles that you're going to be required to deliver those in? So um, to say she's an asset professionally is an understatement. Uh, And that's probably, yeah, 1% of my love for her is that area. Uh, Peter as my expert might be like 5% of my love for him. Uh, you actually mentioned just very casually there, uh, the idea of like self-discipline for, you know, being able to, to fast for 72 hours. I always find this super interesting. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I have willpower for literally anything else, like getting mm. outside to do a 30 mile run. No problem. Like doing yeah. just whatever, whatever my workout that day is no problem. Uh, you know, turning in an article on deadline, no problem. But when it comes to doing something like fasting or eating paleo for a week or any of that, I have no, no willpower as far as that goes. Um, so, I mean, is that something you think about as you're coaching? Are you thinking about like, yeah. what is an athlete, what oh. do they have the natural self-discipline for versus where they just don't, and we're maybe going to need to yeah. to make some either gentler lifestyle changes or figure out just how to make it so easy that it's, there's well, no yeah. way to not do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a difficult challenge in the beginning because with athletes, what I've found um, is that pro- our primary association with food is, is twofold. It's sociologically kind of driven by the environment you're in, but then it's also emotional choice, right? Where is, what's my comfort food? What do I go to? What's my late night snack? You know, that just makes me, you know, that fills that emotional hole sometimes, right? The toughest challenge for me with athletes who didn't really have a good nutritional approach 
was for them to stop thinking about food as social and emotional construct, flip that model and have them think of food as fuel, fuel for what you need to do. And if you're putting so much into your event, you realize that what you're about to put in your mouth is going to augment your strategy relative to training, or it could decrease, you know, what, what you, what your body's physically capable of. So flipping that switch initially into the fuel category and keeping your goal ahead uh, of of a higher priority than the short-term gratification of what a meal can do. That's tough. Um, I don't find like I, I can do it pre like with most things I can, I can bear down and get that done. But yeah, I understand that not everybody has that same level of, of grit relative to, to that selection. So um, yeah, I, I try as a coach, try to, it's, it's around education more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we've seen is just figuring out the interventions that people are are willing to do, right? Like exactly. telling someone who doesn't want to go paleo to go paleo is obviously yeah. like not <clears throat> going to be a sustainable or helpful no. like decision, but maybe and it's. You've got, yeah. And that's, and that's the other part of the equation here too, Molly, you've got um, even um, geographical kind of influences on diet, right? I mean, the Dominican players I had in major league baseball, I mean, mum would send, would ship rice and beans in because it was their, you know, their favorite meal, right? And and we love that. You know, they would have those kind of meals coming in. Asia was totally different. I remember talking to the founder of Metarex, the supplement company, uh, Dr. Scott Connolly at one point. His thesis surrounded, you know, type of food and training type based upon your uh, hereditary, so your heredity. So if you were um, a, like, if you lived in near the equator, hotter temperatures, you were always searching for water, you're more basically maybe derived from endurance-based mentalities with high carbohydrate, high kind of fiber diets. Whereas um, in the Northern hemispheres in cold climates, you know, you're huddled behind the rock for warmth and when the wild boar runs past you grab that break that down eat that and go back to to huddling for warmth so there was this differential of um you know training type of intensity and protein versus endurance and and carbohydrate strategy so i think there's something there although mm-hmm. i don't think it's been studied enough uh, that, mm-hmm. that individuality hasn't been studied enough yeah yeah absolutely Okay, as we as we wind down here, the the one thing I really wanted to to ask you about is, you know, in all of your work with all of these different sports, you know, you've worked with baseball players, you've worked with all of these other athletes, um, for endurance athletes, what can we learn from these pros? Like, what are a couple of lessons that us like recreational amateur endurance athletes can take from what the pros are doing? I mean, obviously, we can't, we're not going to have the access that they do. But I think that's even changing now, like a lot of these things we can now measure and we can now see and we can now do that, you know, we couldn't do 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, look, and I mean, it comes back down to like, um, if we're talking tech and we're talking wearables, it's know your problem first, pick your, pick your technology that you can afford and that you have a confidence interval associated with second. So um, there's so many different choices when, when um, you know, an individual athlete goes out there to purchase something. You walk into Best Buy nowadays, there's probably 10 different devices you could buy straight off, straight off the shelf, right? And so it's uh, use the tech to solve a problem, I think, is the very first, is the very first 
step. Um, in terms of what we can learn, what an endurance athlete can potentially learn from the pros, the pros experiment with a lot because they are, it's a high quantifiable environment. We've got, I've worked with $100 million, I've worked with a $300 million athlete, right? And so when you're talking about the amount of money that's kind of floating around in those environments and a critical nature of injury and, and missing a game due to injury and the cost of that, um, you can be pretty sure that a lot of the stuff that's being utilized in those environments um, is, is for reasons that are uh, monetarily driven. And for that, for that reason, they become um, kind of life and death to an athlete. So there's things coming out now like infrared shirts, which is really interesting in terms of adding to a recovery strategy for a player once they leave the facility. Um, I think what we'll see over time is more kind of innovation in around pro sports and that technology will trickle down and out because there's not a single technology company that wants to purely exist in pro sports. They want to exist for the masses. I think what the Nike Research Lab are doing is stunning. In, uh, up in Oregon, if you're a fan of Nike or not, I think some of the research they're doing is brilliant. Um, the data that groups like outside media have on runners specifically, brilliant, needs to be mined and need to figure out those transaction points there. So you're right. There's a lot of, I think, available, almost searchable uh, items that you could come up with and, and figure out. But again, I mean, there's one thing that is immeasurable here, and that's a human spirit. And I always land back on that to say, look, um, we can guess your capacity, but we don't know. There are moments in professional sports where a guy throws a baseball three, four miles an hour harder than he's ever thrown it. An NFL or an NC2A college player all of a sudden runs 24, 25 miles an hour, and he was only running 19 prior. Um those are the moments we live for in sport. And it's that human spirit that governs and drives that. And that's, that's the beauty. Um, we don't know what your optimum genetic potential is. And I think we can keep pushing it. Oh, I love that so much. I got goosebumps as you said that. So I feel like <laughs> that is a perfect place to wrap this. So let everyone know where they can find you, where they can hear your podcast, where they can yeah. keep up on Kinetics. I think actually as yeah. this podcast come out, comes out, Kinetics should be available for, for the masses. So yeah, probably it might be. Yeah. So um, Kinetics.tech is where you'll find uh, the company and the product. Uh, indirectly through there, you can find the Human Kinosome Project podcast, which we kind of look at the way a person moves individually, kind of like the human genome, right? Everything's individualized. So we've got a podcast that you've been a wonderful guest on um, in and around our, um, in, in the build out of that and understanding there's so much we don't know that we are continuing to build and find me on Twitter at uh, strength coach 21. Those are the areas that I, all I do mate is post research that I love and uh, it's become a real research repository for me. So if I think it's applicable and I want to catch it again, that's where I'll put it. Oh, I love it. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gary. This has been an absolute pleasure. It was great catching up with you again. And yeah, I'm so excited to, uh, to finally get my, my feet on some of these insoles. <laughs> Yeah, well, Molly, I'm calling you right after this 100-mile race, and I'm, uh, I'm expecting good things. 
Oh gosh, I'll, I'll just be crying. You'll just hear whimpers on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm not going to. I know. I know you're going to. You're going to outperform everyone's expectations. So good luck with it. Fingers all. crossed. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.